Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the February 2024 Opera with Opera News. And we'll start by continuing the section Opera in the USA. San Francisco. During the overture to San Francisco Opera's L'Elysir d'Amore, the tenor Penny Potti busied himself arranging the outdoor cafe furniture somewhere on the Italian Riviera in the 1950s. His nimerino was a poor waiter, literally setting the table for the director Daniel Slater's sun-warmed, funny, and ultimately affecting production of the Donizetti Romance. Seen on November 24th at the War Memorial Opera House, the show closed the company's fall season. Hopelessly infatuated with the haughty, out-of-his-league hotel owner Adina Slavka Zemechnikova, Patti's waiter lavished his creamy, boyishly unguarded voice on his opening, Quanto e Bella. As the inaccessible object of his desire, Zamechnikova countered with a steel-cut Chiedi Alora Lucingieri. And so the terms of this unlikely love match were set, both musically and theatrically, with a poignant and transporting payoff coming in the last scene. Along the way, this Elysir served up one delicious diversion after another. With Ramon Tabar conducting a live account of the score, the opera's arias, multiple ensembles, and choral numbers came off in an easy, natural flow. When the orchestration thinned out, contributions from the woodwinds were of especially high quality. This co-production with the Lyric Opera of Chicago, originally created by Opera North UK, was as pleasing to the eye as it was to the ear. Robert Innes Hopkins' production design, bathed in clear Mediterranean light by Simon Mills, featured a festive striped awning slung across the plaza in front of the cafe. Hopkins's costumes were smart and alluring. Two entrances earned a giddy response from both the townsfolk and the audience. The first brought Sergeant Belcore, the vocally underwhelming baritone David Bizzick, and his white-clad regiment on stage riding matching pearl-gray Vespas. Showier still was the arrival of Dulcamara, purveyor of the phony love elixir, who arrived in a hot-air balloon. Exuding a huckster's insinuating charm, the baritone Renato Girolami sang with wheedling and amusingly gullible charm. As the principals floundered their way towards true love, Elysir deepened even as it maintained its spry sense of humor. Patti, a house favorite who rose through the SFO's affiliated Marola and Adler programs, combined his gift for physical humor with a caressing, emotionally exposed tone. Samichnikova turned Adina's ripe coloratura into an elaborate yielding of her vanity. Transformed in their different ways, the lovers met as vulnerable, open-hearted equals. By Stephen Wynn. Washington. Faithful to its tradition of presenting not often performed works such as Sappho, Levin Herbe, Leonore, Maria de Rohan, La Straniera, and Heriodate, 
Washington Concert Opera opened its season on December 2nd in Lisner Auditorium with Rossini's Hermione, one of his most unfairly neglected scores. Indeed, it took 173 years from the time of its premiere in 1819 at Naples' Teatro di San Carlo before it received its first U.S. performance. It was subsequently staged at the San Francisco, Dallas, Santa Fe, and New York City operas in the 1990s, and never since. Pissarro staged it once in 1987, the Teatro Colón once in 1992, and Glyndebourne once too in 1995. More recently, it has been revived in France, Spain, and Russia, as well as at the San Carlo, where it was first performed. A crying shame, really, because it's mostly marvelous music, composed after Cenerentola, Barbieri, and Italiana, and before Ori and Tell, the repertory's five Rossinian staples. One of the reasons why Ermione is probably not performed more often is that it demands a stellar cast, which WCO managed to assemble. Angela Mead, who has sung Hermione on five previous occasions, reprised the role. Prior to the performance, an announcement was made begging the audience's indulgence because she had recently been ill and still had a slight cough. There was no need. She was truly outstanding. Her vocalism was robust, almost tough, and she sang with velvety tone, spirited coloratura di forza, and munificent vibrato. Lawrence Brownlee, making his role debut, was Oreste. He, too, was outstanding. He sustained the vocal line with notable discipline and sounded consistently elegant and crystal clear. The suppleness of his lissom phrasing was remarkable. David Portillo was Piro. His strong, attractive, and very versatile voice smoothly conveyed the character's vital magnetism, with matching musical flair giving expressive meaning to each of his forthright interventions. Ginger Costa Jackson was Andromaca. She not only sang well, but was dramatically compelling, too. A few well-chosen gestures behind her music stand conveyed the entire gamut of the character's feelings, especially her rage. Her singing was vigorous and controlled. Her low notes were particularly impressive, and her top notes explosive. In the smaller roles, Matthew Scolan was a stentorian Fenicio, Kate Jackman, a devoted Chafisa, Rolando Sanz, a scheming Atalo, Aaron Ridge, a bright-voiced Cleone, and Matthew Hill, an earnest Pilate. All five sang more than commendably, as did the chorus, which was excellent. Anthony Walker, WCO's artistic director, conducted. He's unfailingly reliable and often, as in this performance, inspired. Lisner Auditorium, an early 1940s university theater, is not the friendliest. The acoustics are patchy, and because it has no concert shell, much of the orchestral sound flees up into the flies. So achieving correct balances and dynamics is paramount, and quite tricky. Walker realized them all with deliberately tempered energy. His reading of the score, which included several cuts, 
was impassioned and frequently relentless. His choice of tempos, brisk more often than not, was always firm even in the quieter passages, which he didn't allow to linger or languish. The W.C. Orchestra is a pickup ensemble, but many of the musicians have been playing in it for years. They acquitted themselves admirably, consistently playing with warmth and verve. By Hector Luisi. And now, opera on film. Callas, Paris, 1958. Maria Callas. Film. The ORTF film of Maria Callas's 1958 Paris debut, originally shot in black and white, has now been restored in color. I'm not usually a fan of colorizing, but the process, under the producers Tom Wolf and Samuel Francois Steininger, has worked superbly here. Another significant enhancement is the newly discovered sound source from Callas's personal archives, with the resulting Dolby Atmos audio bringing astonishing immediacy to the diva's singing. On screen first is Callas's arrival at the Gare du Nord. In the voiceover, she comments to a reporter, expressing her joy in anticipating this important debut. Then, on the big night, Le Tout Paris is shown at the Opera, with the VIPs including everyone from President René Coty to Bridget Bardot. Finally, as the curtain opens revealing the chorus on stage, the announcer murmurs in awe, Voici la Calas. The Lady of the Hour descends the stairs, magnificently gowned, coiffed, and bejeweled. The repertoire performed in concert is Norma's entrance scene, followed by D'Amour Sulali Rosé, Miserere, and Una Voce Poco Fa. Purely vocally, the soprano isn't consistently persuasive. Her middle register is solid, but by comparison to a few years before, narrower in scale, while her top is often, though not always, edgy at anything above a mezzo-piano. Callis's style and flexibility, however, remain supreme. She does tend to clutch her shawl and fiddle too much with it, but nonetheless, these heroines' essential qualities, Norma's regal dignity, Leonora's desperate concern for her beloved Monrico, Rosina's charm and self-assurance, all emerge memorably. The performances certainly confirm that no soprano on film has used her eyes more expressively than Callas. The gala's second half, Act Two of Tosca, is adequately designed and unimaginatively staged. Albert Lance's stolid Cavaradossi sings a confident Vittoria, but otherwise offers nothing distinctive, while Tito Gobi's renowned Scarpia, dismayingly strained in portions of Gia mi di convenal, lacks the subtlety he would exhibit opposite Callas six years later in London. As for Callas herself, strikingly attired in a pale gold empire-style gown, her vocalism is blessedly secure here, and she's totally immersed in the role. Typical is her terrific handling of the sequence including Nel Pozzo del Giardino, whispered, Assassino, furiously shouted, and Volio Verdolo, with composure regained. 
The soprano's visi d'arte is uniquely affecting, with an unforgettably despairing fall to her knees in the final phrase. Georges Sebastien conducts only decently, and two of the opera chorus's entries are musically catastrophic. The ORTF's frequently distant cameras miss many crucial moments where one craves seeing Callis's face. After the bows, she's shown at the airport prior to her departure the next day, expressing gratitude for the warmth she'd felt from the Paris audience. She notes that they wanted everything from her, and I wanted to give them more than everything. All in all, this is an invaluable souvenir of a hugely important moment in Callis's career, and especially welcome in its newly colorized appearance. By Roger Pines. And now, opera books. Music of Exile, the untold story of the composers who fled Hitler. By Michael Haas, Yale University Press, 416 pages, 25 pounds. ISBN 978-0-300-266-504. The author Michael Haas's devotion over several decades to the rediscovery and dissemination of music by composers, either murdered, silenced, or forced into exile by the Nazis, has been of wide benefit in reclaiming a significant and hitherto lost heritage. His new book continues his exploration of territory related to that covered in Forbidden Music, The Jewish Composer is Banned by the Nazis, 2013, looking at partially parallel creative groups and the music they produced, in various senses, in exile. From his introduction onwards, Haas defines, for instance, the phenomenon of inner emigration, a term often used in relation to Carl Amadeus Hartmann or Walter Brunfels, as well as casting light on some of the many figures he has researched who would otherwise be entirely forgotten, composers such as Max Butting, Felix Petriak, and Edward Erdmann. If opera features secondarily in the volume, it is partly because exiled composers found a continuation of their careers in the genre particularly hard to achieve. For instance, Hans Gall and Egon Velez, both resident in the UK, concentrated for the remainder of their careers on other forms instead. Kurt Weill was to a degree an exception to the rule. Haas analyzes his American output in some detail, pointing out its variety in terms of the types of stage works he attempted, many of them not, of course, operas, and their mixed success. Other formerly acclaimed composers, especially those working in the lighter fields of operetta and musical comedy, struggled in contexts where their previous German-language hits were unknown. Counting for the high level of talented individuals among those who succeeded in the extremely difficult task of emigrating at all, Haas makes a point that those who were highly educated and who had existing contacts abroad stood a far better chance of getting out of Central Europe than millions of others who were not so placed. The fortunes, and also the compositions of quite a number of non-Jewish composers who went into exile, are examined as well as those who, for a variety of reasons, 
remained in Germany or post-Anschluss Austria, including those Haas regards as the compromised and others he accounts under the heading of passive resistance. His views on Hartmann, who achieved mythical status as the one good German musician during the Hitler years, are unusually complex. He also examines the extraordinary and complex significance of such songs as the Dachau Lied and the Buchenwald Lied, the latter to a text by Fritz Lohner Beta, librettist to Lehar, Paul Abraham, and others, who was murdered in Auschwitz. Hans Eisler, Erich Wolfgang Korngold, even Bohuslav Martinu, all find places, to a varying extent, in the discussion, which also scrutinizes composers who went to China, Japan, Russia, Latin America, and Africa. All of them were separated from their musical origins. The little-known figure of Robert Furstenstahl, 1920-2016, whom Haas covers under the concept of inner return, came up with a particularly telling remark when interviewed by Haas just a year before he died. When I compose, he said, I am back in Vienna. By George Hall. And now, it's Trim Up North. By the editor. So, English National Opera's move to Manchester by 2029 has been confirmed. It's what had been suspected ever since Arts Council England wielded its axe in November 2022, threatening to defund ENO if the company didn't move out of London. But confirmed is perhaps too positive a word to take away from a details-free press release that left everything as unclear as before. Will ENO indeed be keeping the London Coliseum as a base for its bigger shows, throwing only smaller-scale crumbs to Mancunians? What will happen to those, orchestra, chorus, stage management, technicians, that form the true heart of any opera company, all long established with homes, children, etc., in London? But 2029 is a long way off, and my prediction is that the move won't happen. Either ENO will have collapsed by then, or ACE been shut down. Possibly both. Manchester's peevish mayor, Andy Burnham, If you can't come willingly, don't come at all, he said in November 2022. Now swears eternal friendship with ENO. But as an ineffectual former culture secretary, who in 2008 himself championed Covent Garden's ill-fated plan to establish a Manchester base, he should know what the pitfalls are. It's not that more opera in the regions isn't welcome. Of course it is. But as Amy Carenza Sedgwick, an equity representative in ENO's chorus, said, moving an opera company to Manchester only to employ people sporadically on freelance contracts isn't the cultural investment the North deserves. Were it not for the government's so-called leveling-up policy, there would be no need to defund London to invest in another city. Yet no one seems able to explain how, if London, population almost 10 million, can't sustain two opera companies, Manchester and Leeds, a combined 5 million, will manage. 
Quite apart from Manchester's lack of good operatic venues, nobody appears concerned about treading on the toes of Opera North, which understands audience supply and demand in Manchester better than anyone. It would be a double tragedy if Opera North also fell victim to this social engineering. As a former ENO boss observed to me, the city has been chosen without any inclusion of an artistic voice. Opera in the UK has, of course, fallen collateral to a far-right government's campaign against the country, but it is a long time since ENO did itself any favors. Currently lacking leadership, with no music director, an interim chief executive, and an artistic director on parental leave, it is at the mercy of a board readily colluding with ACE's whims. In a curious twist, ENO's chairman Harry Brunias and colleagues turned up in New York for a company fundraiser at the residence of the British ambassador to the UN, held in mid-November. It is hard to believe that the large but motley assembled audience would have been inclined to give much money. What was ENO expecting? The fate of New York City Opera has for several years now stood as a dire warning to its London counterpart. And if such a wealthy city as New York can't, or rather won't, support NYCO, what chance ENO? It's difficult to really know what Team Brunyas thought they were doing there, apart perhaps from getting far away from Manchester. And finally, in news desk, Manchester for ENO. Thirteen months after English National Opera was told by Arts Council England to move its base out of London or face defunding and closure, the company announced that it has chosen to set up its headquarters in Manchester, the city that had been widely tipped as its new home, though the shortlist also included Birmingham, Bristol, Liverpool, and Nottingham. Revealing the news on December 5th, ENO indicated that it had agreed a partnership with the Greater Manchester City and Region. The company said that it would be fully established there by March 2029, but would be working across Greater Manchester before then, also continuing to present a substantial season at its long-standing home, the London Coliseum, up to and beyond 2029. But ENO's press release was conspicuous for its lack of detail, giving no hint of proposed venues in Manchester or what would happen to its chorus, orchestra, and technical team, all based in London. Gergiev grabs Bolshoi. Despite earlier denials, see last month's news desk, that such a move was imminent, Valery Gergiev has been installed as General Director of Moscow's Bolshoi Theater. The announcement was made by Russia's Deputy Prime Minister Tatyana Golikova on December 1st. Already the boss of St. Petersburg's Marinsky Theater, the Putin loyalist will now control both flagship cultural institutions, recalling the Tsarist days when they were under a single directorate. Gergiev will serve a five-year term at the Bolshoi, replacing Vladimir Uren, who, according to the Russian government, had been relieved of this position at his own request. 
The post had already been offered to Gergiev publicly by Vladimir Putin in March 2022, the same month that Uren signed a petition opposing the war in Ukraine. No opera on a dead planet. Activists from Extinction Rebellion disrupted the first night of the Metropolitan Opera's revival of Tannhäuser on November 30th. The half-hour interruption began in Act Two, when during Wolfram's aria, climate protesters shouted, No opera on a dead planet, and unfurled banners on either side of the theater. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.